If I were to ask you what is the um, most wonderful time of the year, what's the best time of, uh, of the year for you? How do you think you or people would respond to that question? When are people at their most generous and joyful? When are people in the best of spirits? When is it acceptable to watch reruns of films like Die Hard and Sound of Music and Elf and Home Alone? When is it okay to go to a party wearing a pretty terrible jumper? Only to find yourself surrounded by lots of other people wearing terrible jumpers as well. When are you able to decorate your home and your office desk with gaudy ornaments and long strands of tinsel in terrible colours? And when is it okay to give and receive presents even though it's not your birthday? So when is the most wonderful time of the year, as Andy Williams uh, sings? When the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you to be of good cheer? When are there parties for hosting and marshmallows for toasting and caroling out in the sun? When is the happiest season of all? If you uh, ask people that question they probably, probably will tell you it's Christmas. But here's the strange thing. If you were to ask people what is the hardest time of the year, when does life get really complicated? When is there the most pressure at work and at home? When are there painful memories of family loss or relationship breakdown? When are people most fraught, overcommitted, when do they overeat or overspend? When does life seem overwhelming? And there's the biggest gap between expectation and reality. If you ask people that question, they'll probably tell you the same answer, give you the same answer, Christmas. It's not that Christmas changes everything we experience. It's just that Christmas seems to magnify and amplify all of life's experiences, both the highs and the lows, the good and the bad, the light and the dark. Now maybe for you this past year has been wonderful with new jobs or a new home or newly arrived children or grandchildren or you've had a fantastic new vicar appointed to your church. Maybe you've had improved health or a new an exciting relationship has begun. Or, or maybe it's been a year filled with disappointment and pain and sorrow. And as you head into this Advent season, you're wondering, with, will, will the new year bring hope? Will there be news or light at the end of the tunnel? You see, some of our brightest moments and some of our darkest moments can be linked to this time of year. And so I'd just like to take a few moments to share with you some thoughts about Advent and Christmas and what I think it might mean and what difference it can make in our lives. And I hope that wherever you are in your life, whether you're going through something that's exciting or something agonizing, that the truth of this season will speak to you this year. Most good sermons have three points, don't they? Mine today will only have one. 
Now, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and traditionally, um, it's associated with the idea of hope. And the first candle that we light on Advent, the first uh, Sunday of Advent, is called the prophecy candle, reminding us of the prophets who foretold the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And we've shared together this morning some of those revelations in our Bible readings. They all talk about this Savior coming to bring hope, to bring light to the world. Being born in a quiet backwater of a town, Bethlehem, in humble circumstances, in order to bring light to a people walking in darkness. That this little light would illuminate the world. That was the promise. Now, as I'm sure everybody here knows, the nativity story itself is contained in only two of the Gospels, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. They, those two Gospels, they alone give us the detail about what happened at that first Christmas. They tell us about all of the characters that we see portrayed in children's nativity scenes, apart from the lobster and the penguin, which I don't think are appear regularly in um, the Bible story. But they tell us about Joseph and Mary, don't they? About the journey to Bethlehem. They tell us that there were angels and shepherds and stars and wise men and gifts. And these two Gospels provide great detail about what actually happened. But another of the gospel writers, John, John says nothing at all about how Jesus came into this world. He says nothing at all about the first Christmas. And that's because John wrote with a different purpose. You see, he wasn't writing to tell people what happened. He was writing to tell us why it all happened and what it all means and what difference the arrival of Jesus makes in our lives. And later on, when he's writing a letter to the early church, he summarized the essence of his gospel. The entire gospel he summarized in a few brief verses at the beginning of his first letter, spelling out the why of Christmas. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. And notice the language that John uses here. Whom we have heard and seen and touched with our own hands. You see, John is... is being forthright, he's being emphatic because he is in reality giving his own personal testimony. He's telling people what he actually experienced, what he himself saw and heard with his own eyes and ears. And he wants people to know that Jesus isn't just a myth or a fairy tale or a legend, that this is not just a good story. He's saying, you can believe me because I knew this man. I was friends with him. I walked with him, I followed him, I was with him when he was put to death on a cross. And John goes on to say then, we proclaim to you that what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. 
And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. You see, John is explaining to us that God is no longer an abstraction. That because of Christmas, you can know God and have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And John uses the word fellowship. We have fellowship with him. And then John sums it all up, the why of Christmas, in verse 5. John says, This is the message we heard from Jesus. This is the message. And now declare to you, God is light. A three-word message. God is light. And to emphasize the point, he adds, there is no darkness in him at all. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. Now, one of the first indications uh, that the Christmas season has arrived or is on the way is the appearance of lights, doesn't it, around the town. Uh, Sometime in about October, in some shops, Christmas lights are often the first decorations to go up and the last ones to come down. And no matter where you go, you see them everywhere, in living rooms, on the roofs of houses, at office buildings and lining city streets. After all, what is Christmas without Christmas lights? Wander down down Lord Street and you can't fail to see the lights of Christmas. There's a house on Regent Road, not far from the vicarage, with two large front windows, each with a Christmas tree in it, each with lights, and these trees and the lights are left on all year round. When we go for a walk, we see them. 52 weeks of the year. And there's a couple of houses on Guildford Road. I don't know if they still do it or not. But there's a couple of houses there which are covered in lights. There are illuminated reindeers in the front lawn. Santa Claus is climbing up the side of the wall. But there are lights so bright, I reckon you could see those houses from the moon. But lights, of course, are not just decorations. They serve for us this morning uh, as important symbols. At this time of year, no matter what you want to do in a room, you have to first turn on the light or you can't see to do anything else. And as we will hear now over the coming weeks in this new Advent series, the Christmas story contains many spiritual truths But it would be very hard for us to grasp the others unless we grasp this one first. That is, that the world can be a dark place and we will struggle to find our way or see reality unless, until we recognize that God, through his son Jesus, is our light. And John is saying God is light and in him there is no darkness And this light has come into the world at Christmas. And there is no darkness in him at all. John is saying God is not 80% light with a shade of grey. He's not 90% light with a little bit of darkness. He is 100% light and there is no darkness in him, God, at all. God is always good, all the time. He never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. He never holds a grudge. He's always forgiving always available. 
He never changes. He's infinitely faithful and compassionate and kind. He is always good, and there is no evil in him. He, God, is always light. A few years ago, a billionaire called Yuri Milner, a a venture capitalist, committed to spending at least $100 million to support the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It's called SETI, S-E-T-I, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I think he might have spent his money better, but that was his choice. And he has funded a research project uh, called Breakthrough Listen. It's a worldwide international project. Uh, there's huge funding for it. It doesn't send messages out into space. It's all about utilizing existing technology to listen to space. Breakthrough Listen. The point being to search for intelligent life in outer space. This is not a joke, I promise you. And one of the lead advisors on the project when it was launched was the world-famous cosmologist Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant physicists who has ever lived. And this is what Stephen Hawking had to say about this exploration of intelligent life in outer space. He said this, Somewhere in the cosmos, perhaps, intelligent life may be watching these lights of ours, aware of what they mean. Or, do our lights wander a lifeless cosmos, unseen beacons, announcing that here, on one rock, the universe discovered its existence? If search of this scale and sophistication finds no evidence of intelligence out there, it will be a very interesting result. It will not prove that we are alone, but will narrow the possibilities. It is important for us to know if we are alone in the dark. Stephen Hawking said there's no bigger question in science. Are we alone in the universe? Are we alone in the dark? And John wrote about the birth of Jesus to say, you are not alone and you are no longer living in the dark because the light of the world has come through this child, through this person. And as we read this morning, about 800 years before John met Jesus and wrote about this, Isaiah gave the prophecy The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so it happened. 800 years later, A little baby was born in Bethlehem and grew up and John met him and saw him and heard him and followed him. And John said, in him was life and that life was the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And that's important. Because the world we live in is a pretty dark and dismal and evil place in so many ways. In fact, of course, if we're honest, there's darkness in our own lives as well, in our hearts. 
Some of us are living with pain, with hurt, with brokenness, with anger. And that darkness can become overwhelming for some of us to the point where sometimes we feel like we are just all alone in the dark. And John writes to tell us that we're not. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, Jesus said, but will have the light of life. And so, friends, this is what Christmas means. This is the hope we embrace and celebrate during this Advent time. That God came down and we are no longer alone in the dark. It's an incredible message. Sticking with the space theme, in 1961, a Russian cosmonaut by the name of Yuri Gagarin was the first human being to travel into outer space. And as he was leaving Earth's atmosphere, entering into this new frontier, his president, the Russian president, Khrushchev, uh, cynically and sneeringly uh, said that when Yuri went into space, God was not there. The whole world was watching and captivated by this remarkable event. And one person who was paying attention was C.S. Lewis. And in response to Khrushchev's comment that God could not be found out there, C.S. Lewis wrote a brief pamphlet, an article, called The Seeing Eye, in which he said that if God created human beings... We would not find God by going up into space because God does not relate to human beings the way that somebody who lives on the first floor of a building relates to those who live on the ground floor. Rather, if God exists, he is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play. That God would, for example, relate to us the way that Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Shakespeare is the creator of Hamlet's world and of Hamlet himself. Hamlet can know about Shakespeare only if the author reveals information about himself in the play. And so too, the only way to know about God is if God has revealed himself. And that is exactly what God has done and what Christmas is all about. In fact, the claim of Christmas is infinitely more wonderful than that. God did not merely write us information about himself. He wrote himself into the drama of history, into the drama of our lives. And that is how people have found God. Because God didn't just give us clues about his existence. But at Christmas, God wrote himself into the play. Jesus entered into our world and came into our lives, and came into our stories, and we are no longer alone, and we are no longer in the dark, because at Christmas God came down. People walking in the darkness have now seen and received a great light, and the light is Jesus Christ. Of course, when we say God is light... When Jesus is referred to as the light of the world, we are talking about spiritual illumination and the transformative impact of Jesus in the lives of people who follow him. 
Stephen Hawking may have been looking to the heavens, but amid the overwhelming enormity of the cosmos, the teachings of Jesus offer a simple yet profound answer. He teaches us that our purpose isn't simply to exist, but to live, to live a life rooted in love and compassion and service. The quest isn't to find an external meaning, but to realize the intrinsic value and purpose in every moment, every interaction with another person, and really every breath we take. This message, the fundamental message of Christmas, has the capacity to be life-changing. And maybe this Advent season, you will take the time Maybe for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a long time, you will take the opportunity to think about the implications of what John says about the significance of Jesus coming to our world. But embracing it requires a decision by us, a decision of the mind and a decision of the heart. In a few moments... Mark is going to come and lead us again in worship. And we're going to sing a song, which has become for me a sort of a favorite Christmas song. It's not a traditional carol, but it's a song that we often sing now at Christmas. Uh, Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Let's think about the words as we sing them, the lyrics. And as we continue to worship, just let the words, if you will, And those lyrics be your prayer, to open our eyes, to let us see. Let it be your meditation about who God is and what he's done. And the message this morning is that you are not alone, that we are not alone, that God is with us and we are in his light. Let us pray.